Since 1987, the Pew Research Center has conducted what they call the American Values Survey. Basically, over a span of almost 30 years now, they have been asking Americans about a wide range of their fundamental beliefs. So, survey respondents are asked to agree or disagree on questions like, the federal government should run only those things that cannot be run at the local level, or poor people have become too dependent on government assistance programs, or I have old-fashioned values about family and marriage. You know, you get the idea. Questions like that. And there are a ton of these questions, and if you take all the respondents and report the results based on gender, for example, what you see is that men and women were four points apart back in 1987, and in 2012, they were six points apart. So basically, there's been no real change there. And there is a similar trend when you divide the results by income, religiosity, education, and race. There's no significant difference in the gap in that 25-year period. But the story changes when you divide up the respondents based on their party affiliation, their political identification. In 1987, there was a 10-point gap in the survey between Republicans and Democrats. And by 2012, that number had grown to 18 points. So over 25 years, the gap in values between people from opposing parties nearly doubled. And then it leapt past both race and education as a contributing factor to polarization. So it's true, we are more divided than we have been in recent history. But this level of divide, while challenging, is not necessarily a negative thing. Well, at least it doesn't have to be. In a world where we listen openly to each other, engage in civil discourse, and encourage critical thinking, having these opposing positions could really serve us. But instead, as we see elected officials and the public move further away from the center, we also see an increased level of certainty in their positions. So instead of listening and learning from each other, there has become less room for compromise because everybody is certain that they're correct. And that can't possibly be true. But there's still a lot to learn, especially when we disagree. Well, I, I, I don't want to spoil it for you. Let's just meet back here after the theme song, okay? I'll see you in like a minute. Welcome to Where There Is Smoke, the show where we explore self-development through the lens of current events, pop culture, and experience. This week, we examine how certainty engulfs us and divides us. We bring in the voices of Dr. Robert Burton, Jonathan Haidt, Mark Bussey, and Dan Harmon to uncover how we can bridge this divide, plus WTS digs, a bunch of random clips, and a sound effect or three. My name is Brett Guida. And my name is Nick Jaworski. Let's start the show. Okay, so welcome back. First question, what is certainty? What does it mean to be certain? Well, let's start with an example. This is Robert Burton. He is an acclaimed neurologist and writer. He is the author of the book On Being Certain. And here he is at Google telling a story about a 29-year-old woman who suffered from viral encephalitis. And her main symptom was she believed she was dead. And she said, I'm dead. So I said, take your pulse. Do you have a pulse? Yes. So what do you conclude? I conclude that dead people have a pulse. <laughs> now that is really strange, and this is an ordinary- Well, it turns out that this infection was causing this patient to show symptoms of Cotard syndrome, which can lead sufferers to think that they are dead or that they just don't exist at all. And obviously, if she's having this conversation with Dr. Burton, then she's alive. She is, in fact, not dead. 
But regardless of the fact that she knows she can talk and that she has felt her pulse, she is certain that she is dead. That feeling overrides everything. I said I'd never die, but now I'm dead inside. And that gets us into how Dr. Burton describes certainty, which is basically, quote, a feeling of knowing. And that's important. Certainty is isolated from accuracy. It's isolated from truth. But it's so powerful. It's powerful enough to convince someone that dead people have a heartbeat. So you can be 100% certain about things that you are 100% wrong about. So it turns out that reward for that which is correct and a motivation for that which has not yet been proven must be similar enough that you confuse your mind and continue onward. Which means that there's a paradoxical effect for this feeling of knowing. It can occur as a result of actually learning something. And it can also be a motivation for something that may not be correct at all. So why is that distinction, that certainty is a feeling, not a thought, why is that important? Dr. Burton argues that one benefit of certainty, this feeling that you're correct, is that it closes a thought process. If you have a choice between A and B, you think about your decision, then if you didn't have certainty, you would think about thinking about the decision and so on and so on and so on. They call it metacognition, thoughts about thoughts. The sensation of certainty provides us with the that we need to stop thinking and just know that we've made a decision and it's the right one. You know, you're chased by a lion 50,000 years ago and you go, ah, I escaped the lion. But while you're in the tree, you might go, yes, but what about next time? And 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 what you realize is that you can have, ruminations cannot end with a thought. Like the Rumsfeld says, you don't know what you don't know. Something's got to stop in order that you can make a decision. And I thought, well, what if, you, what if there was in place a separate system, namely a brain system, that told you you were right so you can get on with things? So again, certainty is very powerful. And that feeling of knowing can be very hard to overcome. So the woman who thought she was dead and thought that dead people had pulses, well, she got better. She recovered. Um, she got out of the hospital. And even when she knew that it was all delusion, even when she understood that she was never really dead and that it was all brought on by her illness, Dr. Burton again asked her what it meant to have felt a pulse while she thought she was dead. And, uh, well, her response is, it's, it's interesting. So I said, so how do you feel about it now? She said, well, this just tells me that dead people have a pulse. So you might be saying at this point, all right, Nick, got it. Certainty is the feeling of knowing separate from actually knowing. And even if that's all that you take away from this episode, I, I do think that that's a powerful and important thing to remember. But there's more. There's more. Lots more. Yes, we can take one more step deeper into the brain to try to understand how and why we react so strongly on certain topics. Enter Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor of ethical leadership at NYU and the author of several books, including The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Professor Haidt has done a lot of research into the evolution of moral judgment. What are the things people tend to base their values on? And along with some colleagues, he's uncovered six moral areas or six moral foundations that he believes exist in cultures all over the world. 
each category is sort of a binary of two ideas. So um, the six are harm and care, fairness and cheating, liberty and oppression, loyalty and betrayal, authority and subversion, and lastly, sanctity and degradation. Now, you, you do not need to know all of these right now. There will not be a quiz. But the point is that everybody has their own unique map of all of these values. And Professor Height says that it's like a stereo equalizer, you know, um, with bass and treble that you turn up and down, like that thing in your car. Well, maybe you have got care turned all the way up and you've got fairness right there in the middle and authority is turned way down. Rock ain't about doing things perfect. Who can tell me what it's really about? Leonard. Sticking it to the man? Yes. You've tuned your values or they've been tuned for you so that your life sounds the way you want it to sound. It's like your own personal value stereo. And how those levels are set directly impact how you respond to ideas or situations and they largely inform your politics. Okay, so picture this. You've got this elephant walking along. It's huge and it's heavy and can just barrel through a house or trample over a farm. It's, it's an elephant, it's enormous. And then perched on top of the elephant is a rider who is a person that can see what's happening, describe it, analyze it, and then, you know, apologize to the frantic homeowners as the elephant just plows through their house. This metaphor of the elephant and the rider is how Professor Haidt describes the brain. He writes, quote, the rider is our conscious reasoning, the stream of words and images of which we are fully aware. And the elephant is the other 99% of mental processes, the ones that occur outside of awareness, but that actually govern most of our behavior. And this metaphor is very useful because it highlights something that many moral psychologists and scientists believe is true that our brain, which is the elephant, responds to information or situations without conscious thought. It just moves where it moves without reason. The conscious mind, which is the rider, is only there to rationalize or explain after the elephant has moved. So the important thing to remember here is that we make a moral judgment first, then reason later. This is what we do. We hear something, subconsciously it gets filtered through our particular set of values, then we react. There's no actual reasoning involved on the front end. In fact, Professor Haidt says most of the time, we don't even need reason to do what we do. We just do. I don't need a reason to react how I react, but if I want others to agree with me, then I have to provide reasons to them. So reasoning doesn't even enter this process until way down the line. And that step is filtered through our personal value stereos. And we have to remember that everybody has their own stereos, their own value stereos. People can look at the same issue and just have very different ideas about what that topic even represents, about which filter the topic goes through. So people on the right place more value on sanctity. So many of them are what we would call pro-life. And people on the left, a lot of them don't even look at abortion rights through the same lens. It's not a sanctity issue. It's an issue of oppression. You can't tell me what to do with my body. And it's this disconnect that causes the two sides to not even understand each other from a very fundamental place. It's not surprising that we surround ourselves and align ourselves with people who share similar values. 
We can fight for our causes together. We can be angry together. But there is a byproduct of all of this. When we find our people, we end up creating a team. And we want our team to win, right? In limited doses, that's fine. That's even good. It creates community. But as Jonathan Haidt points out at the Howenstein Center, that comes with a cost. A metaphor that I like to use is if you move a wire through a magnetic field, you know, that's how you generate electricity. And when people move in a literal circle or a figurative circle around the same shared object, it generates a current that binds them together, allows them to trust each other. Um, it's not just religion. We do this with the flag or any sacred object. But when we do this, when you generate that current, it generates a polarity, uh, a literally a polarity, positive and negative. Our side is good. Their side is evil. The very process of binding yourselves together, you circle a sacred object, unites you in your hatred of those who don't respect your sacred object. So our goal with the rest of this episode is to consider a few ways to counteract this climate full of unwarranted certainty and ceaseless hostility. Just by doing a few things, maybe we can make a small difference, not only how we think and feel, but how others do as well. One of the byproducts of this certainty world we live in is clickbait headlines, phrases soaked in hyperbole that frankly drive me mad. But since this episode is unpacking some of these ideas, I'll suggest that if this next segment was turned into an online article, it would perhaps carry a headline like the most attractive three-word phrase in the world that could also transform your life. Or maybe how to win friends and influence people in just three words. Any guesses what that three-word phrase might be, Nick? Oh, um, okay, let me see. I'll be back. That'll do, pig. Forget about it. Sid's dead, baby. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! <laughs> no, none of those. Okay, so probably something with a little more pizzazz. It's showtime, folks. Good morning, Vietnam! Somebody stop me! I'm walking here! I'm walking here! This is Sparta! Nope, but... Those did have pizzazz. Oh, um, I know. We have to get more emotional. E.T. Home phone. As you wish. You complete me. Ah, Nick. I know. But, no. None of those are the phrase we're talking about here. The phrase we are talking about here is, I don't know. What is it that people seem almost afraid to state that they don't know? Interestingly, as I went to write that sentence in this week's script, I actually first wrote, what is it that people seem almost afraid to admit that they don't know? And I think that right there says a lot, that most think of it as admitting, as if we are guilty of something. Now, we've talked a bit here in this episode about politics and 
over the last couple of weeks about our behavior online, but I want to steer this into the business world for a moment. Because in my current day-to-day work with companies and in my 20 years of experience in business, I am struck by this phenomenon often. In the ultra-competitive environment of business, people often feel like they are supposed to know everything and that they have to have an answer to every question. And the environment those feelings create can be very costly. This idea that saying, I don't know, is a sign of weakness when it most often seems like it's the opposite, a sign of strength. It is often the most honest thing you can say, and it brings with it many benefits. I was in Vancouver recently, and I got into a conversation on this topic of I don't know with designer, communication strategist, and WTS listener, Mark Bussey. I have great respect for the level of involvement Mark has with the creative business and civil communities in Vancouver. And as someone who is a catalyst in his communities and facilitates conversations in a variety of forms, Mark thinks about this idea a lot as well. A few years back, he even wrote an article entitled The Power of I Don't Know. The inherent power of the phrase I don't know is that it's simultaneously like a genuine expression of humility you know, the ownership of that, the, that answer is not immediately evident to me. I'm, I'm willing to admit that to you, that I don't know. And the expression that, you know, in the right context, that I have the confidence or, or skills, access to, uh, to my own depth of character and, and experience to, to figure it out, like to go and, and explore. I don't quite know right now, but I w- I'll find out. And in a professional context, God damn, that is so attractive. It, it really is attractive. You are so good looking. Thank you. And then, in addition to all that Mark just expressed, you've also created an opportunity to follow through on your word. When you commit to them that you will find out or agree to explore and find out the answer together, you now have an opportunity to further build trust through your actions. And when you do follow through, which you must in this equation, you rise to the top. To that client, To that person, you are someone who does what they say they're going to do. And I know from experience, there are a good percentage of people who will be surprised and say to themselves, wow, I didn't think he or she would follow through. Mark said, I don't know has an inherent power. And I agree. There is a hard to quantify magic and mystery when engaged in the process of I don't know. And an opportunity to invite others into that exploration, to build engagement. And how many companies talk about how they need more engagement in their workforce or with their clients, and yet in moments where they could build trust through the honesty of I don't know, and then build relationship through the process of let's find out. Instead, they choose to manufacture an answer on the spot. What is the cost of that? To not give yourself the time and to not invite someone to join you in the journey of discovery, you're selling, you're selling yourself short and you're, and, you're, and you're robbing yourself of a wonderful opportunity to actually generate trust and engage in, engage in some, some discourse in a, in a relationship and uh, change your worldview. Going back to that gap we described in the opening of the show, perhaps I don't know is a way for both sides to move back toward the middle and meet for some civil discourse. Consider what gets created in a world where you have two people interacting who acknowledge they don't know everything 
and they don't have all the answers. Compare that to a world where you have two people interacting from a place of, I know everything, and I already have all the answers. There is a finality to that latter world. How can we learn anything or expand our worldview if we already know everything and we're always right? If it is always I'm right and you're wrong, there is no engagement. And that's how communities, and in turn perhaps countries, fail. Somebody recently asked me, I think it was at an event, and there was one of those icebreaker questions on a name tag, you know, something about what my favorite thing was. And my answer I just came to me was, I, I love being wrong, which is weird, right? I, I, what I mean by that, though, is I love, I love as a design-minded, as a design thinker, as a creative person, and just as a human being, I love when I think I've got the answer, or what, what, based on the evidence I had to date, I have a worldview. And then you and I have a debate and we argue a point. Maybe it's politics, maybe it's religion, maybe it's how the best to make chili. doesn't matter. At the end of it, I'm a better person for it because I just layered up. I just learned something. The humility of that is really a powerful thing. Dan Harmon is the creator of the TV show Community, which is one of my favorites. And he co-created Rick and Morty. The seed of this episode actually came when I heard Dan talking about the topic of certainty on his own podcast, Harmontown. And the first thing he says about it lines up very closely to what Brett and Mark just talked about. It's short, but it um, right. it gets Which, to the point. Yeah, opportunity gets eliminated by certitude. Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> like, it's like, we, we okay, so being certain closes us off from connecting with other people and learning something new. But even if we change our own behavior and start saying, I believe rather than I know, and we understand that our own biases are unconscious and that reason comes way later, even if we know those things, even if we start doing those things, we simply cannot control how other people will act. And here's something to keep in mind about people who see things differently than you and are working hard to convince you that they're right. Even if it can be intense or impassioned at times, Usually they're doing it out of some form of care you have to for like you. Compartmentalize. If you're certain that a, a, a glass of water is poison and someone walks up to it and starts to drink it, it's your duty as a human being, actually as a person who values the human race and who hopes that we survive to see a better day and colonize various planets and outlive giraffes. Let's things. <laughs> oh, I'm a horse. I should have a longer neck. Don't let them win. In 1995, the Republicans took control over the House of Representatives. And it was the first time they had done that in about 40 years. And so Newt Gingrich, the new Speaker of the House, wanted to not waste the opportunity. He wanted to hold on to that power and that control. And a lot of scholars have argued that it's no coincidence that partisanship has grown almost exponentially in Congress since that moment, since the moment that Newt Gingrich took over, because he made some, some changes to the way that Congress operates. Of all of the changes, perhaps the most significant one is that he changed the calendar. He changed the work calendar of Congress, of the House. Now, Congress, like most of us, they work Monday through Friday, five days a week. And so because of that, elected officials would actually move their families to D.C. and their kids would attend school there and their spouses would go to parties together. 
And all this interaction meant that these people from all over the country and from opposite sides of the aisle were forced to interact with each other and know each other as people, not just as partisans. But Newt changed that rule, and it's had quite an impact. Gingrich said no more of this, no more fraternizing with the enemy. He changed the calendar so that now all business is done from Tuesday afternoon through Thursday morning, just about. So nobody needs to live in Washington. You fly in Monday night, you fly out Thursday evening. And he said, don't get a house here. Don't move your family here. So since Gingrich, since, since that time, um, it, very few of them live there anymore. They, they rent a place with other members of their party. They, they do battle for two and a half days a week and they go back to their district where they speak with people on their side. So uh, there's been a complete change in the social order of Washington. Imagine this incredibly complicated machinery. Think about that. Simply knowing each other gives us the space to make compromise and move forward. As someone likes to say around these parts, we truly are all in this together. Our success as humans is because we have a variety of opinions and values. The more we know each other, the happier we'll be. And the more we can get done. Oh, Nick, Nick, you mean like the Raffi song? What? No, Brett, I'm in the middle of this. Just let me finish. Um, okay, um, as I was saying, yeah, the more that we know each other, the happier we'll be, and the more we can get done. And once you understand that idea, then I think you have an imperative to do better, to, quote, step out of our moral matrix, as Jonathan Haidt says, to realize that we're all just riders screaming at each other, but it's the elephants that we have to reckon with. And the Raffi song. Brett, what are, you, what are you talking about? I nailed that ending. What are you doing? Look, okay, hey, man, you totally did. I, I just, I know that you don't, you don't want to exclude my viewpoint. I mean, just because it's different, right? And, and I think you'll really like this. And, and you'll appreciate the simplicity. Plus, you said it. Okay, fair point. Um, let's listen to this Raffi song. The more we get together, 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 the more we get together, the happier all right. Well, I, I'm I'm sorry that I snapped at you, Brett. And you're right. I did kind of say it. So yeah, the elephant and what Raffi said. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. Because your friends are my friends and my friends are your friends. The more we get together, the happier Hey everyone, this is Brett. And this is Nick. And this is the part of the show that we call WTS Digs. Pretty straightforward. Basically, Nick and I will share something that we are currently digging. Something we're listening to, something we're watching, something we heard, something we're reading. Uh, we'll give a little insight into why we're digging it and, and you know, encourage you guys maybe to check it out yourselves. So, uh, Nick, we're going to start with you. What are you digging this week? Okay, well, this week I'm digging uh, a certain podcast. It's a show called Trumpcast, which is through Slate magazine, which has been sort of documenting this election strictly through the lens of Donald Trump for months now. And uh, But I'm actually specifically digging a specific moment in a specific episode. How many times can I say specific in 10 seconds? Uh, this is a guy who's a mechanical engineer from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And back in the day, back in May, he and the host, Jacob Weisberg, had talked about why 
um, he was supporting Trump. And, you know, the reasons were very nuanced and interesting. And, and it was an interesting conversation. So fast forward to last week. And this engineer, mechanical engineer, he calls the show back and says that he's changed his mind. That he's not going to support Trump anymore. And um, the host asks him, what, why, what changed? Was there a straw that broke the camel's back for you when you said, look, I just cannot vote for this guy? Yeah, I think it was the video, the video that came out. I don't know, was it TMZ or NBC? I don't know what it was. but Yeah, the, the Billy Bush video, yeah. That's the one. And it's not as much the verbiage that he used. It's not that I think that's a good thing to say by any means or think that way, but the fact that he said something awful didn't so much turn me off as the fact that it seemed like he was just trying to act cool to this guy. And we've all been in situations where somebody said something ridiculous to try and act cool or to try and seem cool or get a laugh, but that's kind of a high school or, or college thing. And, you know, if you're a 55, 60-year-old businessman, I don't know how old he was at the time, but if you're a, a, that guy of that caliber of businessman, I mean, a billionaire, I guess, I don't think you have to seem cool. I think just the fact that you're a billionaire makes you cool. (laughs) To try and just do ridiculous junior high, 17-year-old antics is just, that just says something about somebody's personality and level of confidence to me that just really turned me off. And yeah, I just think that this clip is so interesting because it's just, it's a unique take and it sort of like cuts to the core of something that we weren't talking about. And I just, I don't know, there's something about it that I've been thinking about and I just needed to share with everybody. That's really all I've got. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to back you up here or, or, or I'm going to say that I dig this too. And, and I think it's, for me, it's kind of where they're smoky, you know, as we sometimes say, Nick, meaning that, you know, I think in our show, what we like to do is look at something that a lot of people are looking at, but, you know, look at it in a different way or from a different angle. And, you know, here you have this guy, right, who, you know, everyone else has been talking about this audio and they've, you know, really been focusing on, you know, what Trump said and 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 how demeaning it was to women and how he's describing sexual assault and he might have actually committed sexual assault and all this conversation. And here you have a guy who's basically saying, uh, you know, all that. OK, but you know, why is Trump trying to impress his dude? Billy Bush. Yeah, right? And and so, you know, the Trump campaign came out and said it was locker room talk. And and this guy's actually saying, well, even if it was locker room talk, like, why is basically the, you know, the high school quarterback who's got the best looking girl in school and is most popular trying to impress people in the locker room, right? Right. Right? Yeah, when you're a 60-year-old billionaire, you're already pretty cool. Like, I think that's a very fair point. Yeah, and and, you know, also what I love about it is just it just shows, right, that, you know, kind of what we're talking about in this show almost, like how everyone has different values and different viewpoints. And it's, it is really interesting just to hear like a viewpoint or an idea about something you've never heard before. So I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So everybody, that's a Trump cast. It's an episode called Okay, You Win. It was last week. So that's what I'm digging. Brett, what are you digging this week? Um, Well, I am digging actually, you know, we spoke about four hours ago and I had a different dig. And in, in between, I ended up finishing watching a documentary that I started watching last week on Netflix. And it's my dig for this week. And it's it's called Audrey and Daisy. And, um, you know, it's definitely uh, got some uh, heavy material that it talks about. It, it basically tells the story of two teenage girls who, uh, you know, on opposite sides of the country uh, passed out at parties and were sexually assaulted by boys uh, from their high school. And in the aftermath, um, both of them Uh, attempted to commit suicide. One of them actually died, which is Audrey. And, you know, the film really explores what happened and the aftermath from a lot of different angles. I think, you know, one being online shaming 
and you know this public forum we now have for for shaming people and, and what a huge issue this is. Uh, we talked about it a little bit, Nick, back in our vulnerability episode. Uh, there, I talked about a book called "So You've Been Publicly Shamed" by John Ronson, which I would also recommend. Um, and so there's that, but then also, you know, what we talked about last week is, uh, you know, just how how women are, are treated in society, how how these how these girls were treated when they came out and and told people what happened, uh, sexual assault, rape culture, especially in youth. And, you know, again, like we both admitted last week, I mean, I'm, I'm still learning about all this. I, I feel like I'm constantly trying to really uh, get connected with how, in, you know, intense and ingrained these things are in our society. And that actually these horrible values have in many ways become the norm for a lot of people. And so I, 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 I think it's an important topic. Uh, I think it's a really well done documentary. Uh, and I think it's worth watching. It just uh, it just came out on Netflix last month, so it's relatively new. People might not have seen it yet. It's called Audrey and Daisy, and uh, that's my dig for the week. Well, yeah, definitely check that out. What's it called again, Brett? It's called Audrey and Daisy. Yeah, so that's Audrey and Daisy on Netflix. And of course, we always want to know what you're digging. So go ahead and find us on Twitter. That's at ExploreWTS. And tell us what you're listening to, watching, reading, experiencing. Whatever you're digging, let us know. And uh, we'll check it out. Thanks. Thanks. Ah. <laughs> Tried to get in there. Uh, I did. All right. That music sounds like credit time. We can't say enough about those of you who choose to support the show monthly through our Patreon account. To name just a few, Rob Balaam, Tara Hunt, Jaslyn Prieto, Sam Tobis, Ron Yamada, Jennifer Austin, and Jody Dixon. We'll be talking more about where we are and where we're going in the next few weeks, but please know that your support is immeasurable. And if you want to help us keep this going, please consider visiting www.supportwts.com and see how you can help. For the iTunes reviews, Go-Kart LKR. We wished we lived down the street from you too. Hey, ping us through social media and let us know what city you are in. Perhaps we'll have a meet up there soon or we can just meet for coffee. I don't know about Nick, but uh, I never turned down a free coffee. Also, thank you to Passandra from the USA and Dennis from Canada for your reviews. If you haven't reviewed the show on iTunes, please do. You'll help others find the show, give us a great gift, and probably hear your name here next week. Hey, big ups to those who promoted the show or engaged with us on Twitter these past couple of weeks. Jenna LeBlanc, Ty Harmon, Victor Kuna, Nathan Robinson, Erica Robin, Patrick Keller, Ken Jeffrey, DJ Lazy Jeff, Nicole Da, and Nico Sherbert. Are you following the show on Twitter? It's at ExploreWTS. You can also stay up to date through our Facebook page and by joining our mailing list at Where There's Smoke.co. The WTS theme song was written and recorded by Des McKinney and remixed by Nick Jaworski. Speaking of music, Nick, what other artists were featured in this show? This week we've got music from Jazar, Sea Ladder, David Seste, Mads, Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, Ketza, Blue Dot Sessions, Rafi, Rafi, whichever, and of course, Kevin McLeod. Where There's Smoke is research written and then written like an elephant through an extremely chaotic, stressful, and unperfected process that is not unlike a bull in a china shop before it is finally uploaded for your listening pleasure by Brett Gaida and Nick Jaworski. We feel certain that you'll like it, but we don't really know. 
If you're interested in having me speak, train, or coach at an event or within your company or organization, you can communicate with me directly, brett at wherethersmoke.co. And if you have a podcast or an audio project you want to sound awesome, check out Nick's company, podcastmonster.com, or email him at yes at podcastmonster.com. Lastly, Nick and I want to extend a heartfelt, spooky thanks to listener, screenwriter, and director Matthew Curry Holmes for helping us to craft our urban legend ghost story through last week's criticism replay. Now, since our audience response has been crickets, we're not sure if anyone besides us liked it or, frankly, even listened to it. But we had a lot of fun doing it, and Matthew provided much of the inspiration for the tale of Charles Ray Jenkins. So this long-distance request goes out to you, MCG. When some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks at crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Thanks for listening. We love you. We'll see you next week. <laughs>